Well, good morning, everybody. Everybody doing well? Fairly good? Slightly sleepy? Okay, whatever it is, it's all good. So today we are going to take uh, another step in this series in Genesis, and we're going to be looking at Genesis 41. And in Genesis 41, we deal with Joseph and the dreams of Pharaoh. So I've titled the message today, Dreams, Determination, and Destiny. And it's probably going to be a little bit different than you think it is. But Dreams, Determination, and Destiny. Um, Joseph's life opens... Uh, as a kind of canvas of promise, but of course that canvas happens to be uh, painted on this backdrop of adversity. Um, so you kind of know the story, but you, you, you see this uh, audacious dreamer, this young man who, whose dreams that are given to him in Genesis 37 foretell of this position of greatness. He's going to lead over his brothers. Um, I, I love the, the, um, the audacity of Joseph. I love, I love the boldness that he has to share this dream. Um, but as Jacob Dolezal pointed out a couple of weeks ago, if the Technicolor uh, uh, target on his back wasn't enough, as he starts to brag about his dreams or tell about his dreams, he's definitely going to make enemies with what he does. So he tells of this kind of greatness, this dream that he has. And in the midst of revealing that dream, adversity, not... God's favor, adversity, not blessing, seems to take center stage. Uh, his very own brothers cast him into a pit. Yay, family. Anyway, so, so his brothers cast him into a pit, and they trade his freedom for silver. Okay, and we're going to see how that's a foreshadowing of something, but they sell him into slavery. The story just keeps getting strange, right? So in the furnace of Potiphar's house, Joseph's character is actually refined, and that's the truth of uh, most of our stories. We, we have to be refined, and it's often refined through chaos and through pain. And uh, in the midst of Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife makes some advances towards Joseph, and this kind of allure of sin uh, could beckon Joseph, but it doesn't, and he is unwavering in his commitment to God's purpose for his life. And this really is something that sets Joseph apart in many ways. Through all of this, Joseph is demonstrating uh, kind of the art of staying the course, and that's something that I think we should always be thinking through. We are a people who are supposed to stay the course, we're supposed to run the race in such a way as to win the prize, we're supposed to, um, we're, we're supposed to not look to the right or to the left, our focus is on God, and Joseph's was just that. Uh, he didn't allow adversity to define his life or to define what's going on. Uh, instead, he allows it to refine his character and then to look more and more like the God that he serves. The story doesn't end there either. So it's Joseph's response inside of all these trials that becomes uh, what we love, a, a, a beacon of inspiration, right? We love these stories because we look at them after the fact. And so Joseph's response is something that we have the privilege of reading thousands of years afterwards. We have the privilege of reading it after knowing the full knowledge of the outcome. And if you don't know the full knowledge of the outcome, read your Bible, right? But the full knowledge is there. The full thing is there. But Joseph has to live this story. And he has to live this story blindly. How many of you love the fact that you don't know what tomorrow will bring? No, 
<laughs> I don't love it, right? I want to know what tomorrow brings. How many of you know that even if we knew what tomorrow brought tomorrow, even if we knew what tomorrow brought, we'd somehow screw that up, right? Yep, that's, that's the way I am, right? So, so Joseph doesn't actually know what's going on. He has to live this, and he does so in, in some sense, we might say, that he's doing it blindly. In chapter 41, we encounter a new phase in the story. So this is Pharaoh's court, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh has these two dreams. Now, we've had a series of uh, dreams, couplets of dreams. We've had the dreams of Genesis 37, the dreams of Genesis 40, and now the dreams of Genesis 41. But Pharaoh's dreams are kind of cryptic and perplexing in some ways, and they... um, when you understand the culture and when you understand uh, a couple of things that I'll share with you this morning, you actually see that they cast a shadow of uncertainty on Pharaoh's, um, on the land and on Pharaoh's rulership, okay? So this is really important because we, we start to learn the culture and we start to see the beauty of the Bible and how intricate it actually is. So, so we have this and then enter, he has these dreams, enter Joseph, beckoned out of prison, just for the occasion, right? Thanks for letting me out, uh, but come and interpret my dreams. And he's not there to merely give an interpretation, but what turns out is that he's also, uh, in wisdom, he's able to provide a, uh, a plan of action for what Egypt needs to do, what, what needs to happen inside of the world. So he provides this blueprint for navigating an impending season of not just abundance, but famine. Now, um, when you're reading the Bible, it's important for you to, to look at how many times something is referenced, maybe how many times uh, something is referenced in comparison to how few times another thing is referenced. And, and what I mean in that, in this situation, is that the talk of abundance is very small in this chapter. But the talk of famine is a lot. Why is it done that way? Why is the writer uh, stressing the famine? Because this is the big point of the story. There's coming hard times. There's coming stress. There's coming chaos. And something's going to have to be done about it mainly trusting God, right? And so when you're reading the Bible, it's important that you kind of look at it and say, wow, I saw that the Bible says good three times, but it says bad 16 in this chapter. Pay attention to that, right? The author is trying to draw your attention somewhere, right? So, so Joseph provides this blueprint of navigating, in, in my view, he's navigating the famine, which is the important part. So this is a pivotal moment in the story, and it encapsulates uh, this kind of uh, coalescing of godly wisdom, which Joseph has, as well as an unwavering commitment to obedience, or what we might say is his righteousness, his, his way of walking by faith. Joseph's commitment wasn't just theoretical, and this is a lesson for our day today. It was an actionable plan. Okay, he, he wasn't committed to simply uh, having ideas or uh, spouting off words of his commitment to God. He was committed to do what God said. So, right, so through, so through seven years of abundance, Joseph commits to storing away grain. Now, you might look at that and go, okay, that's not that big of a deal. But let's pause, let's stop, let's slow down, and let's think about what, what we're saying here. Through the good times... Joseph is willing to take the actions 
that will benefit him when bad times come. How many of you, when you get your paycheck, good times, you just spend it, (laughs) right? How many of you take a step back and go, what are we planning for? What are we thinking about in the future, right? This is what Joseph is able to do, and this shows an amazing control, but an amazing wisdom, I think, uh, on Joseph's part. So it's not theoretical, it's actually actionable, and it propels him to navigate these seven years of abundance, to store away grain, to prepare for this famine that comes as a result or that is coming, uh, the interpretation of the dreams that are there. And this is the heart of commitment. It's not just words and intentions. Guys, the Christian life is not just words and intentions. This is where we fall short. Well, I believe in God. Good. What are you doing? You believe in God. What has he called you to? Are you obeying? Are you doing the things that he says you're supposed to do? That's the real question. Make no mistake, being saved by grace through faith does not mean you are saved because God made a promise you would be saved and there is nothing expected of you in view of that grace. There is nothing expected of you to earn that grace, but there is much expected of you in light of that grace. And we live in a Christian world that doesn't seem to want to communicate that because there is an idea that somehow we're trying to earn our salvation or we're negating the gospel. The gospel is this. God loved the world enough to die for it and now has called you to walk the way you originally were designed to walk, reflecting his image to everyone in the world. That's what our call is. So it's actionable. And and Joseph is this guy. He does the stuff that he is called to do, not just uh, thoughts and prayers, right? He does more. So he stores away the grain, he prepares for the ensuing future, and he is committed in action. Now, along with dreams, we often have to deal with symbolism, and this is where Nathan's going to take a bit of time and get on a soapbox in a second, but this is for some reason what a lot of you sick, twisted people like. So anyway, so along with the dreams, right, we have to deal with symbolism. And when we think about the concepts that are woven into this narrative, it makes more sense of what's going on. Pharaoh's vision is this. He has, his dream is that seven fat cows are devoured by seven gaunt cows and seven healthy heads of grain are are consumed by seven uh, withering grains. But this is not a story of livestock and produce, right? These are images that have specific meanings in Egypt and in the world that surrounds them. And then with the interpretation, there's a specific point that they're all pointing to seven good years and then seven bad years, and those seven bad years have to be prepared for. Uh, In Egypt, the sustenance of the entire nation depended on the Nile, Okay, depended on this body of water. It flooded every year. Maybe it still does. I'm, I'm not sure of its current situation. But it flooded every year and it provided millions of acres of, um, of arable land, right? So, so th- this produced or helped produce the nation's food. 
Egyptians viewed the Pharaoh as the incarnation of a god, but not just any god. They viewed him as the incarnation of Horus, uh, and, and Horus was the maintainer of a divinely impo- imposed order on the earth. Any irregularity, anything that disrupted the normal system of things, annual flooding, whatever it might be, was taken as a sign of weakness or the illegitimacy of the Pharaoh's rule, okay? So why do you think Pharaoh's concerned about this weird dream? He's going, what the heck's happening here? What's going on? And when Joseph interprets it, the the interest in this dream is that much higher because now he knows exactly what it means and he's going, hold on a second, I have to protect me, you take over. You make the plan, you make this work, whatever it takes, okay? Do you see what's happening? The only way you can know that is by studying the history. The only way that you can know that and for the, for the story to make any real sense, or at least Pharaoh's action to make any sense, you have to start learning these things. Pharaoh's two dreams in, in, cha- in this chapter echo two more pairs of dreams. Joseph's pair of dreams in Genesis 37, 5 through 11. The two dreams of the cupbearer and the baker in Genesis 40, verses 5 through 19. And now Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh's dreams also feature cows, which had a range of symbolic meanings in the Egyptian religion. And uh, the Egyptian deity Isis was the mother of Horus, okay? That's interesting. The Egyptian deity Isis is the mother of Horus. Who was, who was Pharaoh? He was the incarnation of Horus. And sometimes Isis is depicted in this culture as a cow, Okay, Nathan, what the heck is your point? Except for that's a rude way to see your mother, right? Since the Pharaoh was considered to be Horus incarnate, the cow actually symbolizes far more than just livestock. It symbolizes the mother of Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's own fertility as well as dynastic line. So the Pharaoh sees this, hears the interpretation and goes, this is serious. Something has to happen. Otherwise, he could have been like, whatever, no big deal. No, it's a big deal. There's a lot going on in his head. Why? Because he knows his world, and we don't know his world. So here's where I mount my soapbox. Whenever we set out to interpret the scripture, it is important to know the purpose of a given writing based on its historical background. It is vital that we don't miss the intended purpose, hear me, please, The intended purpose in pursuit of some strange idea that gets planted in our head by people who, one, don't actually understand the Bible, or two, people who don't want to take the time to understand the history. What I mean is this. Genesis 37, Genesis 40, and Genesis 41 do not constitute a biblical guide to dream interpretation. You don't get to read these chapters and go, I figured it out. As long as a dream happens twice in a row, God is speaking to me. If that's the case, I should have been flying by now. Not, without an air, not with an airplane, but flying. I have this dream. It's wonderful. No, that's not what's going on here. You cannot look at the Bible and just come away with your own weird ideas. This isn't a school of the spirit, right? This is the kind of nonsense that people 
people espouse, and they, they effectively tell you in some sort of really pseudo-gnostic fashion, only the smart, only those who have eyes to see and ears to hear can see it, these dreams and the symbols that were represented were what God was doing at a certain moment, in a certain time, and here's where it bugs people, and nothing else. So suck it up, right? Now, some of you are going, what are you doing, Nathan? Why why does this matter to you? Well, some of you never grew up in the world that I grew up in. And some of you have, and you know that at every weird moment in the Bible, somebody tries to make a spiritual school out of it. They're like, ah, we're going to do dream interpretation today. Well, you ain't doing it from Genesis 37, 40, and 41. What you're doing is making crap up and making yourself feel good. And that's it. That's not what is actually happening. What we should be gleaning from the story, and this is the point of all today, so if you want to check out after this, you're more than welcome to, right? What we should be gleaning from the story, the whole story, not just the cool supernatural parts, is actually extremely practical. Be faithful where you are in whatever you do. Put in the work Whatever set before you, do it with all your might unto the Lord. Because when you study Joseph's story, that's what you see. Joseph has a dream. And guess what that dream required? Busting his butt. Right? And guess what came of the dream that he busted his butt for? Destiny. But what it wasn't was ooey-gooey. Right? What it wasn't is some weird thing. You see, we talk about dreams with this grandiose idea, right? But Joseph and his dreams were very real, required very much determination in order to reach any specific destiny that God had designed. In Genesis 37, Joseph is to rule over his brothers. How many of you like this dream? I got it. This is awesome. Via being sold into slavery. You still with me? That's that's rah-rah, right? Employed in Potiphar's house, falsely accused by his master's wife, thrown into prison, and by the way, forgotten about, restored to work really hard for 14 years, and all of this, where are we at in Joseph's story with, if you're Joseph, all of this not knowing what the heck is happening? Sounds awesome. Sounds like what I signed up for, (laughs) right? You know how much I want from God? I want every detail of everything with every outcome, and I want him to conveniently remove all the bad stuff. That's what I want. And he goes, no, right? So this is what Joseph is doing. Mind you, in Joseph's story, he lives in this chaos for years He's 30-some years old by the time we roll into this chapter, which means he's been, he's been on his own now in a foreign land for 14-plus years. He has no idea what God is doing, but he's a man after his dreams. It's not the same as what we talk about. It's not the same as what we talk about. It's very different. How many of you are going to sign up for your dream seminar with Joseph teaching you? <laughs> right? Like... No, I don't like this, right? With the expectation to follow the steps that I just listed with no clue as to what's going on. Nobody's signing up for this. Instead, what does the church preach today? 
come in and tell us your weird little pizza dream. And then after you tell us what your pizza dream, we're going to give you a highfalutin pseudo-Jesus answer. And then when it never comes true, we're not going to re-engage with you. We're just going to simply say you didn't have faith or some nonsense like that. I know you guys are like, can you dismount from your soapbox now? No. Mm -mm. I love this soapbox. This soapbox is one that really gets me fired up because there are so many supposed Christian promises to people that never come true. And when the day comes, when everything has fallen apart, there's no preacher standing there to pick up the pieces. You paid them your money, and they're flying their jet around. It's true, and it's obnoxious. It's obnoxious. What needs to happen is for us to get back to the Bible and understand that what God actually shows us is a story where we don't know the outcome, but God calls us to be faithful in small things. Every day. What do I need to do today? Be a good dad. Let's start there. Let's start with that. What do I need to do tomorrow? Not be as much of a jerk as I was today. <laughs> That's what I'm aiming for, right? Now I fail at that most of the time, right? So, but, but God gave me family to correct me, right? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, here's, here's my suggestion. When you have a dream of God, like Joseph did, what you should do, you should probably ponder it a little bit more than Joseph did, but anyway, you should think about it. But it's fine to speak that dream, but know that that dream might come with adverse effects. You might make everybody else around you mad. How many of you have had really cool insight be honest with me. You've had really cool insight that you knew the Lord had shared with you, and you shared it with somebody, but their reaction was jealousy or to poo-poo your idea. I've had this a lot in my life, right? Right? It's like, ugh, whatever. Jealousy's going to happen, guys. Whatever. God can call you to something. People don't like it. It's okay. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means you got to deal with that, okay? So, so you go out and you have a dream and, or you feel that you have a dream from God. What I would recommend you do is ponder it more. What I would recommend that you do is find out whether or not you're having a pizza dream or something for real, right? And then you should still bring it to people who can help you with wisdom and understanding. Joseph did this. He brought it to his dad. And his dad pondered it. He didn't really understand what was supposed to happen, that he was going to bow before his son or something. Didn't know what was going to happen. But here's my point. Neither did Joseph. Because Joseph did not foresee prison. <laughs> he did not foresee being thrown into a pit. Okay? So Joseph gets thrown into a pit. What does he do there? He starts protesting, right? Grumbling. Woe is me. I live a miserable life. And I'm, I'm, I'm not fulfilling all of my destiny because other people have hurt me and abused me and beat me down. No. He gets sold into slavery and he works his tail end off. He works really hard. You know what that earns him? A favored position in Potiphar's house. You know what that got him? Falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, right? Good-looking guy, Woman wants him. He says no. 
That guy did something to me. He's out. Okay? He gets thrown into jail. What does he do in jail? He starts protesting again, right? Complaining about how life is so unfair and how nobody is for him and how all of this stuff is just stacked against him. Nope, he doesn't do that either. He simply serves faithfully. And when a cupbearer and a baker, whom he kind of has to look at and go, sorry, your life's going to suck, or the little bit of your life that has left is going to suck, right? He has to tell them the interpretation of their dreams. He does so faithfully. He hears the dream. He tells the story. One ends up dead. One ends up reinstituted. And then guess what happens there? The guy forgets him. And now he's stuck in prison again. You know what he does at that point? That's when he protests. That's when he complains and says, woe is me. Nope, still not happening yet. We have no idea what Joseph did in this time. But what we do know is that when he's called upon, he just goes and he serves. How many of you are good with this? How many of you are like, that is so exemplary of my life? I'm patient. I'm good. (laughs) Why aren't you raising your hands, people? Yeah, my dad's pointing at my mom, but I know. Anyway, no. (laughs) Anyway, suck up. Anyway, (laughs) so the point is that he keeps serving faithfully. Then Pharaoh has these dreams, and this magnificent thing happens. And what does Joseph do once Pharaoh says, that's it? You are You are the highest ranking person in the kingdom, except for me. You can tell everybody what you want them to do. What does Joseph do? He grabs tight on that scepter and he starts whacking all the people that hurt him all the way up. No, he doesn't do that either. For seven years, he faithfully serves by storing up grain and storing up all the stuff because he's getting ready for what he knows. And listen, Joseph knows what he knows. He knows that God is bringing about this famine. It's a serious business. He works his tail end off and he sets this place up where later in the book of Genesis, it actually says that because of what Joseph did, he preserved many people alive. An entire world, by the way, preserves them alive because he faithfully serves and serves and serves and serves and serves and serves and serves. serves. He's not whacking anybody. He's not beating anybody. And we're going to get into it in the weeks to come when his brothers are finally reunited with him. And he still doesn't take it out on them. And that's where I fall woefully short. Back to a message I shared a couple of weeks ago. That's where revenge speaks sweetly to me crush your brothers. What did they do that to you for? But instead, in an amazing way that echoes a future, uh, a future man, a future king on a cross, he forgives them because they don't even realize what they're doing. Because what they intended for evil, God had a better plan. The problem is he just never told Joseph the plan. Why doesn't God tell us? I'm convinced we'll just screw the thing up, right? So this story is an amazing story in which what we see of Joseph is a guy, no matter where he's at, what he does is he works hard and he works faithfully as though he does so unto the Lord. 
You want to take away from Genesis 41? You want to take away from the dreams of Joseph? Leave your uber hyper spiritual stupidity behind and look at the facts on the page. What it is, is if you will be faithful, God is going to reward. Period. And it might take the rest of your daggone life. Yippee. But that's what the call is. So, how many of you still would refuse to sign up for that? I'm, I'm with you, right? Sounds really hard, but that's what we're actually called to do. There are lessons that we can learn from Joseph's story, and they have nothing to do with dreams. As we reflect on this kind of uh, tapestry before us, let's, let's draw the wisdom out of it. Let's, let's see it. Number one is trials. Joseph's journey teaches us that trials are not stumbling blocks, but to be as corny as Nathan can muster, they're stepping stones. That makes me sick to say it, but it's true, right? I, I couldn't be a motivational speaker. I would actually puke too much. Anyway, right? So journey, this, this journey, it has to teach us that every trial we face is actually a stepping stone this is the disclaimer, if you'll let it be. If you'll let it be. If you won't, you'll have stumbled and you'll never get back up. And who will you blame? Everybody but yourself. The trials that we face are not actually designed to defeat us, but to refine us, to mold us, to make us into these vessels of purpose for a king who is worthy of our devotion. That's what we're called to be. Trials are going to come. How many of you know Jesus promised trials for all of us? Why do we spend our days trying to avoid them? Because we failed to remember we learn. We failed to remember we need to learn. We failed to remember that once we got saved, we weren't made perfect. We were put on the journey towards sanctification. Remember this, church. Remember this. Second lesson that we can learn from this is commitment. Like Joseph, we are called to commit. All in, not just in words, but in action. And our commitments must be a kind of, uh, the words that we speak, the promises that we make, all of those things must be a fuel that drives the action. Otherwise, it's just faith without works, and James tells us, that's dead. That's dead. The second would be abundance and famine, and it's back to symbols just for a brief second. The symbolism of abundance and famine uh, actually calls us to be wise stewards of every resource we have. There will always be time of feast, and there will always be time of famine in our lives. So in times of plenty, what should we do? Sow generously. Be generous people, right? In times of scarcity, what should you do? Well, hopefully you can reap from the things that you were faithful in. You know why most Americans live paycheck to paycheck? Because there is no being faithful with what they have. It's being irresponsible with what they have. This is challenging, right? So we've got to be better at this, and we've got to do better at this, and we can learn this unbelievably cool lesson. That lesson is not even what, we're, uh, what, what we need to like put on a plaque or anything. It's just an amazing lesson that passes us by in this text. Take it for what it's worth. Learn from it. 
But the Bible reinforces that lesson. The Bible talks about uh, passing on an inheritance to your children's children. I quote this all the time. Giving something to them. Why? So that you can set them up in the future. Joseph set an entire nation up to survive because God had a plan. And then that plan also includes, which again we'll get to in the coming weeks, it includes restoration of relationships. Maybe that's what happens. Maybe it doesn't. But you're still called to be faithful in that time of abundance so that you can be preserved in a time of famine. In James 4.15, the scripture says, Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. The principle here actually underscores a balance between uh, commitment in ourselves and God's will inside of our lives. Whatever dream God gives you, whatever thing that's before you, just remember that even though it's nurtured by commitment, it is also contingent on the will of God. Everything we do is contingent on the will of God. When we have great plans, do we submit them to the Lord? The Bible tells you to. Do you live in such a way that you never submit anything to the Lord? Don't, see, don't, don't be surprised when you don't see him moving. Simply saying that that's what our call is, to constantly go back to him. So dreams, all of those pieces, if they're nurtured by commitment and put into the hands of God, then I think that they can arrive somewhere. So Genesis 41 is fascinating because it, it's intended to resonate with us as well as to teach us that God remains faithful even in the midst of the weirdest story you've ever read. It should inspire us to navigate life's trials, with unwavering commitment. How many times has God let people down, church? How many times? Give me a number. Zero. God has never let anyone down. Do we think he's let us down? Do we think he's not listening? <clears throat> of course we do. And by the way, we keep good company when we say that stuff because we're just like David. Lord, where are you? But it doesn't mean David was right that God wasn't there, it just means he lacked understanding. Amen? So we've got to navigate these trials with unwavering commitment. We have to sow seeds in times of abundance so that in times of need or want, there is provision there. Joseph's story is actually, in many ways, a practical blueprint for us. Many lessons that we can learn from Joseph's story. I hope that we can be like Joseph. I hope we can stand firm in the face of adversity. I hope we can commit to uh, more than just good intentions, but actionable plans. I hope that we can lead uh, fulfilling lives according to God's will. I hope we can pray and submit our plans to God for his will to be carried out in our life, and not just us working on autopilot without the, without the help of the creator God. We've got to take these principles. We've got to apply them to our lives, and we've got to see them play out. In Joseph, we catch a glimpse, um, <clears throat> and this is where I think the biggest principle of all comes in the story. We catch, we catch a glimpse of resilience and the foreshadowing of a greater story. Remember I mentioned that his brothers sold him for 20 pieces of silver before. Well, there's a story of redemption and sacrifice and salvation that that should draw our minds to. 
Just as Joseph's dreams foretold his rise from some pit in the middle of the desert to this prominent position, Jesus comes from a humble manger and he advances to what? King of the world, church. He is the savior of the universe. Both Joseph and Jesus face trial, both just for a bit of silver, they get betrayed. Joseph and Jesus both reveal a commitment to God's mission. Both of them lay down their life for the very people who betray them. So isn't it funny? We talk about how we want to look like Jesus, and Jesus says, lay down your life for your friends. And we say, but what does that mean, Lord? And what we want is some grandiose plan that we wouldn't even follow through with either if he said, go hang on this cross. We're like, no, right? But instead, he gives us a simple one. And he goes, here's what I want you to do. There's times that are going to be hard coming. I want you to take care of things now so that you can be there to help people in the future. And we're like, no. (laughs) Again, no. That's too much work. Lord, what I want is my dreams. And he goes, yeah. There's commitment in those dreams. There's determination. There's resilience. There's push, 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 push. And you know what that looks like? Be faithful all the days of your life. You wake up in the morning and you say, what is before me? Well, the first interaction that I'm going to have is I'm going to greet my wife. I'm going to greet my husband. I'm going to greet my children. I should probably start off by not being a jerk. Start with that. Let's try it. What's God called you to do? Love. Okay, that sounds good. Okay, I got to go to work. What do I do there? Well, I'm supposed to serve my earthly master as though I serve the Lord. Well, Lord, you don't know how much of a jerk that guy is. He used to run the levee. He's not nice. Huh? That was a reference to Barney for anybody who doesn't know that. Anyway, right? I don't know what you want of me, Lord. This is difficult. I've got to constantly be pushing against this. And he's like, Okay, what would you have me do? What, would you, what do you want to do, Nathan? Well, Lord, I want to lay down my life for my friends. Because you, you won't even treat that guy kindly. You aren't going to lay down your life for anything. You're a jerk. I mean, Barney says that every day. <laughs> anyway, right, anyway, right. You're called to this. Let's say you get done with your work and you have an opportunity to serve or to help, to commit to the church body, to take care of a fellow brother or sister in Christ, and you're like, sorry, you don't fit into my schedule. But then you come in on church on Sunday and you sing songs that say, send me, Lord, wherever you send me, I will go. And he goes, how about Applebee's to talk to somebody today? You're like, but there. I don't like that one. God, you don't realize I'm an introvert. I don't like people. Well, we got to work on the liking people part, right? It's funny that God gives a great commission and he never takes into consideration the vast personalities that he made. He just said, get up. Oh, I don't like this, right? And you know what my excuse is? Because I am an extrovert. My excuse is today, I'm not feeling so extroverted, (laughs) right? Isn't that convenient? He's like, I even wired you for it, jerk. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go where we are called. What we see in Joseph is a man who goes where he is called. What we see him foreshadow is a savior who went to 
every end necessary to rescue the world. Jesus is in a humble manger. He journeys from obscurity to savior of the world, facing betrayal, facing all of this adversity, and he's still hanging on a cross as Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Joseph's trial forges his character, and his journey was just a shadow of the one who would endure the cross, bearing the weight of everything wrong we have ever done. Not just the things we have done, the things we will do. Joseph's story, of course, because he's 100% human minus the 100% God part of Jesus, encourages us, inspires us to stay the course through trials. But it's actually Jesus' story that reveals the source of unwavering commitment, which is God in us, the hope of glory. If you're going to read the Bible and you're going to take away lessons, open your eyes. Open your eyes to the lesson that matters. Don't close it on the passing fancy of the church culture of the day. Look at the story and realize what God has called you to do. Be faithful in everything you do. Give your entire life to reflecting him. And what will happen? There's a lot of destiny ahead. There's a lot of fascinating, amazing things that lie in store for every one of us. Amen.